I want to bring a message to you tonight from Matthew chapter 2, and I've entitled my message, On the Hunt for Jesus. We all know, based upon recent circumstances, but also because we are a keen people who is aware of what is going on in culture, that there has been an increase in hostility towards the church and Jesus Christ and the Christian faith. In many respects, the church is kind of like an irritating little brother, I think, to the world. We're tolerated as long as we stand off in the corner and don't make too much commotion. Don't ask to be invited along. Don't interfere with our older brother's plans. We're like that little brother that's cast aside, that's pushed aside, that's tolerated. But if the little brother asks for too much or seeks a little respect or seeks to posture himself in a way that is seemingly unbecoming, he quickly becomes hated. And in many respects, this is how the church is being treated. The church is not the little brother to culture. The church is the matriarch of Western civilization. It's because of the church that we have democracy and we have hospitals and we have this notion of jurisprudence and a government and police officers. It's because of the hard work of Christian people throughout the centuries that have stood for that which is righteous and just. The culture has been blessed with these things, but over time, culture has forgotten the vital work of the church. And perhaps in part, it's because many churches have forgotten the vital work that they've been entrusted with. And so we've been cast aside and subject to ridicule. But this is nothing new, brothers and sisters, because we explore the gospels and especially the birth account of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a clear contrast of perspective or response to the coming of the God-man, Jesus Christ, into this world. There's a contrast in Matthew chapter 2 between those that would be savage towards Christ and those that would sacrifice much to be in his presence. And it begs the question, which category do you find yourself in? Are you savagely opposed to the things of God and Christ and his people? Or do you long to be in his presence? Are you on a hunt for Christ? Do you want to see the fullness of Christ loom large in your life? Do you want to be nourished and refreshed? Do you want to feed off of the bread of life? Let's turn our attention toward Jesus and consider our personal response. As we enter into Matthew chapter 2, we're learning here that Jesus demands a decision. Jesus demands a decision. Many people treat Jesus sort of like as a neutral figure. But Jesus is not a neutral figure. Jesus demands a decision. You must worship him or you literally are his enemy. If you're not worshiping Christ, you are his enemy. If you are not for Christ, you are his enemy. If you are opposed to the things of Christ, you are his enemy. But if you love him, you will worship him. If you're serving him, you will worship him. Look at the contrasting responses we see in Matthew chapter 2 to the coming of the God-man Jesus Christ. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born 
king of the Jews. They were among the first to declare the kingship, the royal claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when, uh, for, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So here we have a bit of a, an understanding of their heart, their desire, their intentions. They asked for Jesus the king and then the narrator tells us that the reason why they came is to worship him. This is the rightful response. This is the response that Jesus is due. But then we have a contrast. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and he wasn't alone. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling, notice the word all. All means all. All the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Here we have two responses. Right out of the womb, there are two dramatically different responses to Jesus' entry into the world. And the contrast is clear. We have the wise men coming to worship him. And by the way, we don't know exactly from where the wise men hailed, but we do know they came from the east. And scholars estimate that their journey to Christ was probably somewhere between 650 and 1,000 kilometers. This is prior to the invention of planes, trains, and automobiles. These men traveled by camel, perhaps by foot. And they came with no human guarantee that there would even be such a one as the king of the Jews. But they traveled nonetheless. They came by faith. And the text makes it clear that they were eager to worship the king of the Jews. Now, if you grew up in church, or at least are somewhat familiar with the Christian story, this is not an unusual thing for you. You've heard about the wise men for years and years and years and years. But have you ever actually considered how unusual the coming of these wise men were? Think of the different things that they would have had to understand or have experienced or committed themselves to or sacrificed in order to be in Christ's presence. The first one would be this. They came without prophetic witness. They didn't have a Bible as we have it. They didn't have a completed canon of scripture. They didn't have preachers and teachers in their hometown to say, hey, you know, something's going on over there in Judea. You should probably head that direction. These men received some sort of insight or divine revelation from God, and they simply responded to it and obeyed and went. Secondly, they had no evidence they had no documentation, no photographic evidence, no emails confirming that Jesus would be there. They had no party of people waiting to receive them. They came by faith. They also came by great risk. Traveling in ancient times was a dangerous thing. You could be beaten up. You could be robbed. You could be murdered. It's a dangerous thing to go on a journey of several hundred kilometers they came at great expense, would have cost them a lot of money, time away from their occupations, travel expenses, food expenses, expenses to feed their animals. Wouldn't have been easy. But these men 
were so moved that they were willing to hunt down Jesus at great personal sacrifice for what reason? Simply so that they might worship him. Now the second contrast is Herod. In in this text, we see Herod the king, and Herod the king represents for us sinful humanity, the naysayers, the Jesus haters. The, The individuals that want to rule themselves, notice he is Herod the king. And when he finds out that there are wise men in the area seeking the king of the Jews, his personal defenses automatically go up. This is a classic example of an individual that wants to be his own king. He doesn't want to be ruled by a Messiah, by Christ. He wants to guard his own territory. He doesn't want to sacrifice his life for the God who had created him. And the same is true of humanity today. By nature, we love to be autonomous, meaning self-governed. We want to rule ourselves. By nature, I want to be my own king. You want to be your own king or queen. That's our natural bent as human beings. And the notion of worshiping another king, by nature, kind of turns us off. It repulses us. It's fascinating and sad at the same time that all the officials appear to be complicit in his desire to conspire against the Lord Jesus Christ. While the wise men hunt for Jesus in order to worship him, Herod hunts for Jesus in order to execute him. Can you see the pattern here emerging from this gospel narrative? The pattern of humanity as as a whole as it pertains to their view of Jesus Christ? People are okay with Jesus if he just remains a moral figure, standing off to the side, maybe hurling a few choice moral pearls into the mix. But when Jesus lays claim to sinful humanity's lives, when Jesus claims to be your king, my king, there's a natural concern, a natural disobedience, a natural revulsion at times to that. In this gospel narrative, we learn that some come to worship the king and others despise the king. And it's amazing the lengths that people will go to in order to silence Jesus. There's no real reason or rationale behind it that makes much sense. But what we learn from this gospel text is that Herod goes to great lengths to to try to execute Jesus and get this, while he is still an infant. How disgusting is that? The Bible says in verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He's being a snake in the grass, as we say. He's trying to dupe them. He's trying to manipulate them for his own purposes. And then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, Bring me word so that I too may come and worship him. Well, the wise men, of course, were wise men and they saw through this lie. And so the Bible tells us that after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose 
went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I'm not sure what that might have looked like. Great joy is a wonderful thing, but to rejoice exceedingly with great joy is a pretty exuberant description of the joy that these men had. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. This is the rightful response to the king. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. And Herod's plans are foiled. Now, I'm sure that many of Herod's advisors noticed that he collected unto himself all the wise men, or I should say all the religious elite from culture to advise him and to try to understand the circumstances. These religious Jews should have known better that had access to the word of God. None of them stand up. None of them forewarn Mary. None of them tip off the wise men to Herod's truest intentions. They remain silent. Maybe in their own mind, they thought to themselves, well, you know, Herod might not be the ideal king, but, you know, we're into law and order after all. We're into the public good. We need to keep Herod on the throne. After all, we can't allow a competitive king to disturb societal order. And so it appears from the text that the religious elite, those that should have understood more than the wise men, the true identity of Jesus Christ, because they had the Old Testament scriptures at their disposal, stood silently, perhaps even encouraged in a certain way, the tyranny of Herod against the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this event, obviously we know that Herod was not successful or we wouldn't be worshiping tonight in this way. The Lord eventually appears to Joseph and Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, takes his son and wife and he flees a great distance to Egypt for a period of time to save his son from the one that interestingly would come one day to save the world from their sins. And verse 16 says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This is one of the greatest tragedies in history. This man, realizing that he wasn't going to get to Jesus, desperately sends his soldiers out, who obviously comply, which shows, by the way, how a wicked king over time can manipulate and utilize his own men to commit abominable acts against the Lord Jesus Christ. He sends these men and they carte blanche, wipe out all the young boys 
in this small town and in this region. In history, this is known as the massacre of the innocents. It doesn't make sense. It's nothing less than just pure, wasteful, unadulterated wickedness. And who stands up against it? Nobody. Where are the protests? Where are the confrontations by the religious elite, the leaders of Israel? whose own kinsmen lost their sons at the hands of this tyrant. Nobody says anything. The Bible has no record of any pushback, any legal action, any confrontation. This man commits abominable wickedness. And you know what this is a reminder to us of tonight? When you extract Jesus from the mix... When you fail to acknowledge who the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords truly is, humanity's capacity to plunge itself into unfettered wickedness is absolutely without bounds. You might think, well, this is kind of an extreme event. Stuff like this could never happen in our culture. Look around, folks. Look around at the country of Canada. A country then in its charter documents recognizes the supremacy of God, but clearly does not recognize the supremacy of God. Because are we any better? Are we really any better? Why is it that it is so vital and fundamental for the church of Jesus Christ as the body of Christ on earth and as his representatives to fight for the ability to preach the gospel just so we have something to do on Sundays? Or Christmas Eve? No. Why is it so fundamental that we fight for the true meaning of Christmas? Why does that matter? Why is it absolutely essential that we fight for righteous government? That we fight for righteous government? That we stand up when men like Herod seek to govern nations here or around the world? Why do we stand for these things? Because we know the wickedness of the human heart apart from God. These are issues of true justice. You know, many in the church today have reduced justice down into, you know, giving out cups of coffee or feeding poor people soup. It's a very reductionistic understanding of what it means to be an agent of justice. To be an agent of justice is to speak out against all and any affront to human dignity or the supremacy of God. This might, again, look like an extreme example in Scripture, but if you look at our culture, think of all the things that modern Christians are complicit in, either by their silence or by their inaction, much like those early rulers were. In our culture, we may find ourselves mildly repulsed at the idea of Herod butchering a whole town or region full of baby boys. But we live in a culture where we butcher our children all the time at an earlier age in the womb, all wrapped up in the package of women's rights. And it's disgusting and it's shameful. 
We play God with our gender in the name of freedom and choice and personal expression. We mix up and twist up the minds of young people thinking that you can pick whatever identity you want. There's no consequences to that. It's just another expression of freedom and human rights and you know, it's the righteous thing to do. And how dare you stand in the way of somebody who might not feel comfortable in their own skin? We close down our churches, the spiritual hospitals of our nation. We close down our churches, the spiritual hospitals of our nation for the sake of the supposed common good. And all of a sudden, everyone seems to miraculously know, godless people even, people who know nothing else about the Bible. They suddenly know both the words of and the application of Mark chapter 12, 31, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor? What a joke. That's not a cultural value, folks. Let's not pretend that's not a cultural value in our country. This is a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Let's just admit it. We're selfish. We're a selfish nation. We're not a loving nation. That's a joke. All of these things, folks, should cause us great consternation. Western civilization, as I see it, is literally crumbling around us. And it's all because we refuse as a nation to bow the knee to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who rules over all. What are, we to, what are we to do? As the righteous remnant, we are to persevere. We are to be like the wise men who at great personal sacrifice and expense seek out and worship the King. Seek after his kingdom be on mission for him. We could perhaps take a cue from the wise men as well, not unnecessarily expose ourselves to tyranny by sharing with unrighteous rulers all of our plans, all of our initiatives, all of our ministry. But nevertheless, at great personal sacrifice to ourselves, we continue to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we count the cost. So let me leave you with this question. Are you on a hunt for Jesus? Are you passionate about him? Are you passionate about serving him, worshiping him, loving him? Let me encourage you to press forward as doggedly as you can. Pursue him at all costs. This will honor him and it will be a great blessing to the world around us that so desperately needs to come to know the true King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the lover of our souls, the one who is benevolent beyond belief and who has a plan that when followed only brings blessing and grace to the people of God. <laughs> 